Well, again, good morning. It's great to see you on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday. It has been said many a times that Easter Sunday is like Super Bowl Sunday for a pastor. Um, And I can't prove whether or not that is true. I don't know what it's like to play in the Super Bowl. All I can do is imagine what it's like to play in the Super Bowl. But come to think of it, that's all the Dallas Cowboys can do, is imagine (laughs) what it's like to play in the Super Bowl. So... um, As I think about it, though, I guess there are some similarities between being a pastor on Easter Sunday and maybe being a quarterback playing on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, For example, I woke up this morning about 3.15. I was so excited I couldn't wait to get here, and I began immediately rehearsing every line of my sermon in my mind and thinking through every play in the playbook, if you will, of exactly how I hoped this morning would go. My mind was racing the entire time. So, yeah, I suppose in some ways, Easter Sunday for a pastor is like Super Bowl Sunday for a quarterback. But also, if I'm honest with you, Super Bowl Sunday can be a bit challenging for a quarterback, and Easter Sunday can be rather challenging for a pastor. It's challenging because I have, I know, multiple audiences here in this room. I have multiple audiences watching online. You're coming from various different backgrounds. Uh, For example, we have some people here today who are here every single Sunday. And this morning as a pastor, I feel the pressure to say something novel so that you walk away wowed. Can you say wow? Wow, thank you. See, I've already won. Um, That's good. Um, On the other hand, we have people, and these are my people, to be honest with you. This is more my upbringing, and and there were, believe it or not, times before I became a pastor where I was more the Christmas and Easter kind of churchgoer. And so I recognize uh, we have some of you here, and we're so glad that you are here. Again, you're my people. I relate to you more than the every week kind of people. Um, But as a pastor right now, I feel the pressure to say something intelligent so that you walk away convinced. And so I'm in a bit of a dilemma right now. Do I try to say something novel so the church crowd is wowed, or do I say something intelligent so that my people are convinced? And there's my dilemma. Or do I try an altogether different approach And as is famously said, do I just keep the main thing, the main thing, and let the Word of God sort it all out? And that's what we're going to do this morning. And to do that, I want to invite you to open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a pew right in front of you. And feel free to keep it. It is yours if you want it. But today is Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And so, of course, today we are going to keep the main thing the main thing. We are going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus. And in your uh, program, your bulletin, you should have received an outline that looks like this, and there on your outline you can see two major things we're going to talk about together this morning. 
Number one is we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're gonna work through the text together and we're gonna focus on the gospel of the resurrection then. What was Paul saying to the church there in Corinth? And what difference did he hope that it made in their life then? And then we're gonna shift gears and we're gonna talk about number two on your outline, the gospel of the resurrection now. What difference should Paul's message to the church in Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago, what difference should his message have in our life here in Dallas, Texas this morning? So again, grab your Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, let me give you just a bit of background for just a second. So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter called 1 Corinthians to the church in the city of Corinth. Now the city of Corinth was located in Greece. And there in that exact region, there were really two very significant cities. You had Corinth and you also have Athens, which is very nearby Corinth. Now these are two very different cities. And even today, the name Athens is synonymous with things like philosophy and culture and civilization. Athens was the place for very smart people like Plato and Aristotle. But nearby Corinth, while it was influenced by the philosophy of Athens, Corinth was a very different city. Corinth was a city of wealth and affluence. The people of Corinth valued pleasure more than learning. The people of Corinth left the thinking to their Athenian neighbors and they focused on having fun. Corinth was a hotbed for immorality. So let me just ask you an honest question for a second. If you were alive in those days, which of those two cities would most appeal to you? Athens, the city of intellect and learning, or Corinth, the center of wealth, affluence, and fun. But Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, again, certainly influenced by the philosophy and thinking of Athens, but he's writing this particular letter to the church in Corinth. And so what is Paul's message here in 1 Corinthians 15 to the believers there in the pagan city of Corinth? I want you to grab your Bibles and let me read for you here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we look at and we ask the question, what is the main thing that the Apostle Paul was saying to the believers there in Corinth? Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I want you to underline or take note of that word first, first importance. That word first simply means primary or the most. 
So the question is, what was of primary importance for the Apostle Paul? What was the most important thing the Apostle Paul wants to say to the church in Corinth? What is the main thing that Paul wants to discuss with the believers there? What's the main thing? Now, before I answer that question, what was the main thing, let's first talk about what the main thing was not. What the main thing for the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, what the main thing was not. Because if you think about it, I suppose that Paul could have said many things to the church there in Corinth. For example, Paul could have written to the church in Corinth and he could have talked about politics. He could have written and discussed whether or not the Roman government was corrupt and whether or not it was or wasn't doing the job that it was supposed to be doing. But politics was not the main thing for the Apostle Paul. I suppose if Paul wanted to, he could have written the Corinthians about the economy there in Corinth. Perhaps he could have said to them, listen, you really need to diversify your portfolio and protect your assets because of the instability we're seeing in the market here in Corinth. But the economy was not the main thing for the Apostle Paul. I suppose Paul could have written to the church in Corinth and he could have discussed the pagan culture there in the city of Corinth and how the Christians there really should isolate themselves from the pagans around them. But isolationism wasn't the main thing for the Apostle Paul. What Paul is saying here in verse 3, he's in effect saying, listen, there are many things that I could have written to you about, but what's most important, what's of highest priority, what's the main thing that I want you to hear? Well, notice what Paul says. What is the main thing that Paul has for the believers there in Corinth. There's four really big words that I want you to see. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. Four really big words here that summarize what is most important for the Apostle Paul. Christ died, Christ was buried, but Christ was raised, and Christ appeared. Let's look at each of those four major claims of the Apostle Paul for just a second. Again, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, Paul says. Now listen, this is an important statement because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is also abundantly clear that the wages of sin is death. 
And so the Bible is abundantly clear that because all of us are sinners, because we've all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, then what we all deserve is spiritual death, separation eternally from a holy God. That's the bad news. But notice the good news that the Apostle Paul says here. The good news is that while we all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God and are deserving of death, the good news, Paul says here, is that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. His death atoned for our sins. Christ died as the substitute in our place for our sins to bring us forgiveness. That's the good news we see here in verse 3. Paul makes the claim, Christ died for our sins. And the next big word I want you to see here is the evidence of the fact that Jesus died. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And here's the evidence, and that he was buried. He was buried. Paul here offers the evidence to his claim that Christ died, and the evidence is that Jesus was buried. He literally died and was buried, was placed in a tomb. He didn't, as some claim, just appear to be dead, but he actually died. And we know from the Gospels that there were Roman soldiers there entrusted with ensuring that he was truly dead. And being truly dead, Paul says, he was buried. This statement has finality to it. He was literally dead and buried, period. But that's not the end of the story. Because the third major word I want you to see here is that word raised. Notice again, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul's next claim here, perhaps the boldest of them all, is that Christ was raised on the third day. Christ was resurrected on the third day. And Jesus' resurrection is the confirmation of the fact that Jesus truly is the all-powerful Son of God who has conquered sin and death and is now the one reigning as Lord of all. I promise you that this claim right here would have seemed absurd to the Athenians, and quite possibly also to those in Corinth, that Jesus died but was raised on the third day. So, to offer proof for the resurrection, notice the fourth thing. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and notice this, here's the proof, and that he appeared 
to Cephas, then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or they have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So here Paul offers the evidence of the resurrection. That after the resurrection, Jesus appeared. And you see Paul used that word appeared four times here. As evidence of the resurrection, Jesus appeared here, Paul says, to Cephas or to Peter and to the 12 apostles. Next, he says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, notice, at the same time. Not just a hallucination. Third, Jesus appeared to James, most likely the Lord's brother, and to all the apostles. And finally, notice, Paul says, Jesus appeared to him, the last of all, one untimely born. Again, notice Paul's argument here. Jesus died, and as evidence of his death, he was buried. But Jesus rose on the third day, and as evidence of his resurrection, he appeared to all of these people. The evidence would have been overwhelming. By the way, I do want you to notice one more thing. I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul describes himself. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 500 brethren. He appeared to James, verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Why? Because I am the least of the apostles, verse 9. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I love Paul's humility here. I'm saying, listen, Jesus appeared to me, but I didn't deserve it. He says, "I, I persecuted the church of God. He appeared to me, last of all, and I want you to notice the phrase, he appeared to me, one untimely born. That phrase, one untimely born, is used elsewhere to describe a stillborn baby. And Paul uses this graphic and painful image to powerfully illustrate the fact that he was in a dreadful and wretched situation before Jesus intervened to save him. Paul, like all of us, was dead in his own trespasses and sins before the redeeming work of Christ came and gave him new and purposeful life and freedom and forgiveness of sins. Paul says here, listen, here's the main thing. Jesus died and was buried. But Jesus rose on the third day And he appeared to all these people, even to me. In the second century, a man by the name of Tertullian famously asked the question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? In other words, what does Athens, the center of intellect, have to do with Jerusalem the center of faith. In other words, where does 
intellect and faith, where is the intersection point of those two ideas? Where does faith and intellect come together? And honestly, if you look here at Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the answer is it intersects right there. Paul's argument here would have worked in Athens. Jesus died, and there's evidence of his death, his burial. But Jesus rose again, and there's evidence of his resurrection, and these are all these appearances. But the main thing Paul has has here, keeping the main thing, the main thing, the main thing for the Apostle Paul is this message, this gospel message that Jesus was died, was buried, was raised, and appeared all according to the Scriptures. This is the main thing for the Apostle Paul. But keep in mind, Paul, again, he's not writing this letter to the Athenians. The question really isn't, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? The question is, what does Jerusalem have to do with Corinth? This pagan city there in Greece. What does Jerusalem and the events that happened on the third day have to do with Corinth? How do you live out your faith in a pagan place like Corinth. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, you can tell that the church in Corinth has all sorts of problems. They are really struggling to live out their faith in a pagan city like Corinth. And so notice what Paul ultimately says. Skip down to verse 58 for just a second. His summary statement of this entire chapter Paul says to the believers there in Corinth who are struggling to live out their faith in this pagan city, he says, therefore, based on the resurrection of Christ and on your future resurrection, therefore, my beloved brethren, notice, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul here acknowledges that For the believers there in Corinth to live out their faith in a pagan culture, it will seem like it's in vain, but it's not. It's going to be challenging for them, no doubt. But Paul's encouragement to them as they seek to live out their faith in a pagan world is to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Living out your faith in a pagan Corinth would be tough. But because of the resurrection, it's worth it. It's worth the struggle. That's Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 15. On Thursday, just a few days ago, my 98-year-old grandfather died. My grandfather was a POW in World War II. His plane was shot down and captured over Germany towards the end of the war. After the war, he eventually went to chiropractic school, became a chiropractor in Lawton, Oklahoma, where I'm from. He didn't retire as a chiropractor until he was 94 years old. And on Thursday, he died at 98 years old. Which on the one hand is a long time. But when you really think about it, it's not all that long. 98 years is really not all that long. And so the question 
I want you to ask yourself is, is that all there is to life? 98 years if you're lucky, but that's it? Or is this life just the beginning? Is there a resurrection for all of us? And if this life isn't all that there is, and if this life really is just the beginning of something eternal, then what? Does Paul's main thing here in 1 Corinthians 15 have any relevance on us today here in Dallas, Texas during our 98-ish years on this earth? And to answer that question, I want you to look at number two on your outline. Let's think a little more closely about what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. And again, I want to acknowledge that I have two different audiences in this room this morning and watching online. I'm glad all of, that, all of you are here, but let me address my people first. There are some of you here this morning who may not be convinced of this whole Christianity thing. Perhaps you're skeptical of what we believe. Perhaps you're here because somebody drug you here this morning. Perhaps you think that 98-ish years is all that there is, but that's it. My question for you is if that's what you believe, then what do you make of Paul's claims here in 1 Corinthians 15? What do you make of Paul's argument here where you have both an empty tomb and these over 500 people who claim to have seen the resurrected Christ. How do you make sense of it? Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says this. He says, most people think when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, the burden of proof is on believers to give evidence that it happened. But that is not completely the case. He says the resurrection also puts a burden of proof on its non-believers. It's not enough to simply believe Jesus did not rise from the dead. You must come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. You have to provide some other plausible account for how these things began. And so what is it? How do you make sense of what Paul lays out here. Because again, you've got to keep in mind that when Paul was writing this book, if one wanted to refute the claims Paul is making here, they could really attack it from two different angles. Number one, they could make the claim that Jesus didn't really die. So all the appearances people saw of Jesus were just the Jesus who never really died. But that claim if I'm honest with you, is rooted in an absolute ignorance of what the Roman soldiers were entrusted to do. The Roman soldiers were trained killers. And they ensured on that day that Jesus was truly dead. And make no mistake about it, they would not have allowed him to get off that cross. It's simply not plausible to say that Jesus didn't really die. 
So throughout history, what other people have done is they've attacked the second claim, which was that Jesus was raised and appeared. Even today, people say, well, Jesus was just a great man. He was just a great teacher, but that's it. He died, and that's the end of the story. He didn't rise again. But again, think about that claim for just a second. If, if Paul is writing this letter, no one in Jerusalem, no one in Corinth, no one in Athens would have believed the preaching, this message for even a minute if the tomb had not been empty. Skeptics could have easily produced a dead, decaying body. That's all they would have to find to completely refute the claims of Christianity. And again, Paul's writing this document in a day and age when the audience could travel to Jerusalem and confront those 500 witnesses and say, tell me what you really saw. Paul wouldn't have written those things if it weren't so. And so, because you have here both an empty tomb and over 500 first-hand witnesses of the resurrection, then the only plausible and by far the most probable explanation is that Jesus truly did rise again on the third day. N.T. Wright says in his great book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he says, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb, and these sightings of the risen Jesus. But they had that faith because of the occurrence and convergence of these two phenomenon. In terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, this one is as watertight as one is likely to find. You cannot come up with a more plausible explanation for the birth of the church than the fact that Jesus really did rise again. That's it. That's the main thing. And so let me ask you, my fellow Athenians, how do you explain the events that occurred on the third day? Again, the most plausible and probable explanation is that Jesus indeed died and was buried but that he rose on the third day and appeared to over 500 people. And so my question for you is, do you believe it? Do you believe these claims of who Jesus is? Do you believe that he died for your sins, but that he rose again, conquering sin and death? And I have to give you an opportunity, an invitation here where you are or watching online to trust in him, to put your faith in him, to know that it is impossible for you to take away your own sin. The only way that a holy and righteous God can forgive you is by placing that debt of sin you owe on his son. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to put your faith in him right now. My second application question is for those of you who are convinced 
of the resurrection. This is the wowed crowd here this morning, okay, the churchgoers. My question is, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Or what does Jerusalem have to do with Corinth? Or even better, what does Jerusalem have to do with Dallas? What relevance does the resurrection of Jesus have on our life as believers today? Because as N.T. Wright says, simply saying that Jesus of Nazareth was bodily raised from the dead, he says that is a self-committing statement. To believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead is a self-committing statement. In other words, to believe that Jesus really died, was buried, was raised on the third day and appeared to all these people, to really believe that message is to change the way we live and we go about life. Paul's major argument here in the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is that because of the resurrection, our life as believers should be dramatically different. So what is Jerusalem have to do with Dallas? Back in February of 2021, I came across an article on ESPN talking about the success of the football program at SMU here in Dallas. Apparently, SMU that year had landed its best recruiting class in modern history, and the author of the article there on ESPN was trying to explain why Coach Samples had such success in recruiting all of these superstar athletes to come play football at SMU. But there in the middle of the article is an astounding statement explaining how Coach Samples is so successful in bringing these superstar athletes to Dallas, the author says this. It's not a hard sell for Coach Samples to preach the gospel of Dallas. The gospel of Dallas. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I love Dallas. I love living here. I love the food, I love the restaurants, I love everything about it, I love the weather, I love the fact that right now it's beautiful outside. When I was in Wyoming, it's still snowing outside. I love Dallas, Texas. I love being here. I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, but let me ask you a question. The gospel of Dallas? Do you ever find yourself trusting in the gospel of Dallas? The good life that's promised here, very similar to the good life that existed in Corinth, I do. I often find myself tempted to live by the gospel of Dallas rather than this gospel. I love Dallas. I love being here. But 1 Corinthians 15 compels us to live by a new gospel, by the gospel of the resurrection. See, if what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 is true, if, if Jesus did indeed die for the sins of the world and was buried, 
If Jesus did indeed die and rise from the dead, if Jesus did indeed appear to all of these people, then that's a game changer. If Paul's message here in 1 Corinthians 15 is true, then this life, even here in Dallas, even if you have it for 98 years, it's not all that there is. It's not what we should be living for. If Paul's main thing here in 1 Corinthians 15 is true, then that means that Jesus is indeed Lord of all, including over you and over me. If this message is true, then this means that every day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If this is true, then that means that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, that there is life after this And if Paul's message here in 1 Corinthians is true, then this gospel is the one we live by. Then this message is the one that should be recruiting people. Then this message is only the one, the only one that saves, the only gospel that takes people from death to life, from darkness. To light. If this is true, then nothing else really matters. If this is true, it's of first importance. It's the main thing. That's it. This is it. This is my Easter Super Bowl sermon. Maybe you're convinced. Maybe you're wowed. Maybe you're not. But if you are convinced or wowed, please don't be convinced or wowed by me. Because I, like Paul, I'm just a guy untimely born. If you're wowed or convinced, then be wowed and convinced by the resurrected one. Because Christianity, you see, is not just a set of ideas to be wowed or convinced of. Christianity is good news about a man because of whom the world can never be the same and those who trust in him, praise the Lord, will never be the same either. And that's the main thing. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we have all sinned and have fallen short of your glory. We confess that we are deserving of eternal death. But Father, we also confess that Jesus died and was buried. He rose again and he appeared. And so we confess our trust in Jesus' work of redemption on our behalf. And we thank you, Father, for loving us enough to send your Son Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us and rising again. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for convicting us. And, oh, Lord, we ask that you would enable us, even here in Dallas, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. Help us, we ask, to keep the main thing the main thing. God, we thank you for forgiving us We thank you for loving us. We thank you for 
redeeming us. We thank you for saving us with an infinite love. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus that overshadows any other so-called gospel of this world. And finally, Father, we ask that you would fill us with rejoicing now as we sing, as we proclaim aloud, oh, praise the name, and because he lives. And we ask this in the name of Jesus the King, the resurrected one. Amen.